Welcome to the Explore Words Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, New York Times best-selling author Reza Aslan discusses his book, An American Martyr in Persia, unveiling the extraordinary story of Howard Baskerville, a Christian missionary from South Dakota, who joined Persian students in their fight for democracy during the 1907 revolution, and how his death inspired a transformation in Iran's political landscape. Recorded live at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, this episode takes you on a brief but inspiring journey through one of history's hidden gems. Thanks everyone for being here today. My name is Javad Alipour. I'm a theatre maker and artist. I grew up in Bradford, but I'm based in Manchester now. So either a sellout or a Yorkshireman in exile, depending on how we <laughs> want to divide that up. Um, it's my absolute pleasure today to introduce Reza Aslan, who is an internationally acclaimed writer, producer, and scholar of religions. He's a recipient, in, a recipient of the prestigious James Joyce Award. He's the author of three internationally best-selling books, including the number one New York Times bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. Aslan's latest book, An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville, was long-listed for the 2023 Penn Jacqueline Bograd Weld Award for Biography, and that's the book that we're going to kick off discussing today. So Reza, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's really my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I, I got in uh, last night. I'm a little bit jet lagged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, sleep was a little bit iffy, but I'm feeling good. You got some coffee? I've got some coffee. Ready to go. On my third cup. I'm Brilliant. feeling good. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, uh, so, yeah, my first question to you is just going to be about um, uh, so Howard Baskerville. It's this, uh, I was lucky enough to be able to read the book over the past couple of weeks. It's a super compelling story. Um, do you want to tell us who Howard Baskerville was? Howard Baskerville was a 22-year-old Christian missionary from the U.S., from a little state called Nebraska, in, in the middle of the country, who in 1907 um, went to what was then called Persia uh, as a Christian missionary. Uh, he had gone there to, on a two-year mission to teach English uh, and to preach the gospel and he was assigned to um, a, the, a little school, an international school called the American Memorial School, a, a school that was run by Christian missionaries, <clears throat> excuse me, Presbyterian Christian missionaries uh, in the northwest city of Tabriz, uh, which is a, it's a very historic, very important uh, city that uh, borders uh, Russia on one side and Turkey on the other. And he, unbeknownst to him, he had arrived in Tabriz smack dab in the middle of what was then the first democratic revolution in the Middle East. Uh, it's called the Constitutional Revolution of 1905. So just a brief background on this. And in 1905, uh, a group of young, zealous Iranians began protesting on the streets, clamoring for the creation of a constitution, a document that would uh, set down the rights and privileges of all of Iran's citizens, um, and the creation of a parliament, a, a legislative body 
that would have the ability not just to pass laws, but more importantly, to curtail the absolute authority of the Shah or the, the king at the time. Um, it took about a year and a half of protests and bloodshed and, and strikes and, and you know, bizarre closures, but they actually succeeded. In the end of uh, 1906, December of 1906, the Shah at the time, uh, a man by the name of Muzaffar Din, uh, relented. He allowed for a constitution, which was actually a, a pretty progressive document that laid out the um, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. Um, and he also allowed for the election of Iran's first parliament. Um, and then, of course, in one of these, you know, moments of, you know, uh, history that, you know, seems to always happen, uh, three days after he signed that constitution, he died. And the uh, person who took the throne was his son, this 35-year-old, um, you know, just miserable SOB. I don't really know how, <laughs> else, how else to put it, uh, named Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali, he's a tough historical figure. He, he was raised to believe that the throne was his by birthright, that God had made him Shah, and that no one could remove that from him. He was incensed with his father for having deemed, you know, uh, to sort of curtail those God-given rights that he thought he enjoyed. And so from the very beginning, when he took over in January of 1907, uh, with the help of his um, Russian advisors and his Russian-trained and Russian-armed troops, uh, launched a counter-revolution against um, this movement. Um, began sort of slowly taking back every city, every province for the throne uh, until he had essentially recaptured all of Iran except for Tabriz, except for this one city in the northwest where all the revolutionaries kind of ran to and, and blockaded themselves. And it was just at this moment that this 22-year-old evangelical missionary from Nebraska suddenly showed up uh, to, to preach the gospel. So it was, as you can imagine, a, a kind of auspicious moment for him to, to have arrived in, in the country. Yeah. Amazing. And then uh, I sort of like want to ask a few more questions about that, but I'm, I'm also aware of like, you know, uh, what do you call it? Spoiler alerts and this kind of stuff. <laughs> yes. Um, so just one, one well, the book is called American Martyr. Oh yeah, fair play. So it's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we so all know we, how this ends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so just some contextual questions. I think it's sometimes interesting for people um, uh, that you you speaking there about how Muzaffar Din Shah and Muhammad Ali Shah, how much they relied on a kind of uh, a network of Russian advisors yeah. with advisor, I think, in, in you know, air quotes and so <laughs> yeah. on. And I think sometimes uh, when we think about Iranian history, people are used to thinking about, if you like, for, for, want, of a for want of a less contentious phrase, um, the kind of uh, imperialist power who is uh, kind of messing around there, being the Americans, and to a lesser extent the British. But of course, 
there's like a there's this much deeper history right. and, and, and yeah. perhaps it might be useful to just talk a yeah, little bit about that. Look, that's really really smart because it's funny because technically Iran was never colonized, um, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't carved up and controlled by imperial powers. And at this time, 1907. Uh, this was right in the shadow of this very important agreement that had just taken place that we now refer to as the Anglo-Russian agreement. And it was this agreement between the Russian Empire and the British Empire, um, which had been fighting the great game, you know, divvying up parts of the Middle East amongst themselves, uh, exploiting it, you know, the natural resources of the region for years and years and years, but which suddenly, in the face of this other alliance that was starting to form, the alliance between the Ottoman Empire and the German Empire, uh, the Russians and the British decided we should stop fighting and we should figure out a way to just kind of come to an agreement about what's mine and what's yours. And when it came to Iran, the agreement was that Basically, everything in the north of the country would fall under Russian control, um, and everything in the south would fall under British control. Now, bear in mind, this is before the discovery of oil, which would happen in about four more years. So it's not, not yet. Uh, the British get the south, which to them just means they get access to the port, you know, to the ports of the, of the Gulf. And the Russians get the, the, the north. But we also have to understand that in 1905, at the same time that this um, revolution in Iran is starting, there's a revolution in Russia. <laughs> in 1905, the Bolsheviks launched this rebellion against the Tsar, against Tsar Nicholas. Um, it wasn't a long-lived rebellion. The Tsar responded with unfettered violence, um, essentially just killed everybody and put an end to that revolt. But it did shake his confidence a little bit. And so when he started seeing, when the Tsar started seeing the same thing happening to the Shah, um, he wanted to nip that in the bud as quickly as possible. And it just so happened that the Shah um, was, at that point in time, essentially you know, kept in on his throne by the Russians, by hundreds of thousands of dollars in unpayable loans, uh, by a Cossack brigade, the sort of, you know, main military arm that was funded by Russia, uh, armed by Russia, and literally commanded by Russian troops. Uh, and in fact, Muhammad Ali, there's this sort of wonderful story that I, that I tell in the book about his childhood friend and tutor, uh, this man by the name of Shapshal Khan, uh, a Russian, who was with him since he was a child, uh, and when he was crown prince, tutoring him in Russian, and then when he became Shah, becomes his primary advisor, who we now know from history was an, an agent of Russia, was actually uh, a, a spy, <laughs> and was kind of pushing him to take a very aggressive uh, stance against the revolutionaries. Um, so you're absolutely right. You know, the tale of modern Iran is a tale of imperial domination. It's a tale of outside forces uh, interrupting the internal 
development of the country itself. And it starts right there with the very first revolution in 1905. But, you know, it happened again in 53, and it happened in 79. And it's just, it's just this kind of common refrain mm. that whatever is happening in Iran cannot be divorced from all the external forces that are trying to pursue their own interests mm. and manipulating those events and those forces within the country for their own advantage. And mm -hmm. this was certainly the case. Yes, yeah, really interesting. Um, one uh, thing that, one of the reasons I really enjoyed reading the book is I am a big, you know, history nerd. And one of the periods of history that I find incredibly compelling is that period of the Constitutional Revolution. Yeah. So it's, not only does it have all this incredible politics and stuff, but it's just a bit, it's a bit of a dashing time. <laughs> there's a bit of a sense of daring do, you know, there's guys with like mustaches and like, you know, those belts of bullets yes. and yeah, and, and this kind of stuff. And people called, you know, uh, uh, if you're a revolutionary, you're called like Satar Khan or Bagir uh -huh. Khan and you arrive on a horse and it's all, it's all very cool, I'm going to be honest. Yes. Um, what, what is it about, did you, when you wanted to write this book, was it, I know you talk in the book a little bit about your personal connection through being Iranian-American to this, the idea of Howard Baskerville and stuff, but was it that period you wanted to explore? Was it Howard Baskerville? You want, what brought you into this? What brought me into this was Howard Baskerville. He, this, is, this was a... I grew up in Iran. I left, you know, in the 79 uh, revolution, a little bit after the, the, the revolution, certainly after the Shah had fled and Khomeini had returned. And I grew up in an Iran in which the name Howard Baskerville was everywhere. I mean, there were schools named Howard Baskerville. There was an auditorium not near, not that far from my uh, house in Tehran that was called the Baskerville Auditorium. There were streets named Howard Baskerville. His tomb, again, spoiler alert, he dies in this revolution. <laughs> um, his tomb uh, is still in Tabriz. And uh, there was a time in which uh, every year on the day of his death, which is April 19th, uh, thousands of people would come from all over the country to, to visit his tomb. There's this golden bust of him in the, in the museum uh, in, in Tabriz. Again, we're talking about an American evangelical Christian missionary who is considered this heroic figure in Iran. And when I was a kid, you know, he was America to me. Like, yeah, Baskerville was the only American that I knew. We would learn about him at school. And then I came to America in 79, 1980, and realized that no American had ever heard of this guy. <laughs> you know, this guy that streets were named after. Uh, this guy whose death day was a holiday in Iran. No American knew who this person was. And eventually, you know, I also forgot about him. Eventually, you know, post-revolution, his name was pretty much wiped from the, the collective consciousness of, uh, of Iranians. All the schools were renamed. All the streets were renamed. Um, to this day, like, it's very hard to find anyone, certainly anyone under the age of 50, in Iran who could tell you who Howard Baskerville was. Mm. Um, in the process of working on this book, I sent a crew to Tabriz. I figured, well, Tabriz, certainly in Tabriz people know who this person is. Nope, couldn't find people. 
some, the, the crew went to the museum where there is a Baskerville wing, right? With a bust of him and a giant painting of him and his rifle um, and his, you know, his bloodied clothes, like all of his things are there. And the docent wasn't exactly sure who Howard Baskerville wow. was. Um, and so I just thought, this, is, this has got to be remedied. Somebody's got to do something about this. This, mm. this story has to be told. Um, and so that's why I wanted to write this book. It is the first biography ever written about yeah. him. That's really interesting. It's really interesting. One of the things that struck me reading the book was, um, uh, you know, obviously, I suppose why, why, why it's important to be, be interested in history, right? That you, there is a very sort of fecund and fertile relationship mm. with looking at these times and thinking, you know, the contrast and the similarities and the parallels with what's going on now in Iran and more broadly in the region and stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, I just wondered what, if you could yeah. speak on that for us. Well, it's funny because you were talking about the Constitutional Revolution and what a fascinating time it was and it had all these incredibly colorful characters. You're, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's, a, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary time. I should also mention it, it was a very, very big deal in the world. It wasn't mm. just an Iranian affair at the time. Um, when the revolutionaries had kind of, uh, kind of, you know, gathered in the city of Tabriz, they had sort of created this this one bastion where they could fight against the Shah's Russian-trained troops. They sent out this extraordinary document. This, this letter, this appeal, it's called the National, National Manifesto um, to all the capitals of the world, Europe, United States. Um, and the document, uh, it's, it's just, it's an incredible document, but in it, it says, it's an appeal for help. And what it says is, put away the bigotry of nationality, put away the prejudice of creed and come to our aid. There's this sort of beautifully poetic moment where it says, if you open up the heart of a British man, won't it look like the heart of a Persian? The, the idea being that like, you know, we, we divide ourselves according to race and religion and nationality and ethnicity, but really the divide is between those who are free and those who are not. And if you believe, you know, that freedom is a, 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 uh, you know, a human right, come to our aid. And people do. It's extraordinary. Russians and Armenians and Turks and uh, there's an Irishman. Uh, there's always an Irishman. There's always an Irishman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's always one Irishman in all of these things. Uh, uh, you know, Georgians, uh, Christians, Jews, Zoroastrians, Baha'is, Buddhists. I mean that suddenly what forms is this multinational, multi-religious coalition, people who speak different languages, come from different places, have different colored skin, uh, different religions, but who are all united in Iran's fight for freedom against the Shah. Um, and so it's an extraordinary you know, global movement. But in this movement, I do think it's important to note that there's only one American 
And it is this young Christian missionary who, it's a very long, complex story of the 18 months that he's there that, that, and what ultimately you know, forces him to turn. But he, he does eventually give up his missionary post. He gives up his teaching position. Ultimately, he gives up his American citizenship. Um, and he picks up a gun and he reconstitutes his students into a militia to, to fight in this, in this war for, for freedom and democracy. And there's this kind of beautiful moment at the end of his life where the US government, which cannot abide by this, they, they, the idea that one of its citizens is fighting in this, in this conflict is, is uh, just cannot be, ha- cannot be done. They send uh, the American consul general to Tabriz to basically talk some sense into Howard Baskerville. And the consul general says to him, this is not your fight. These are not your people. This is not your country. It's none of your business. Get back on a ship and go back home or we're going to arrest you and charge you with treason. And Baskerville says something extraordinary. He, he looks at the, you know, the battlefield and he says, the only difference between me and these people is the place of my birth. And that is a very small thing. And then he hands over his passport and gives up his American citizenship. And I think about that now 116 years later, not just that here we are as Iranians still, still fighting for those same rights that Baskerville and, and the Tabrizis of the time were fighting for, right? The most basic, the basic rights the right to have a say in the decisions that rule your life. That is not a big ask. But for 116 years, that's been the fight. But also the idea that this kid, 116 years ago, understood something that we ourselves are barely starting to get which is that these borders, these boundaries, these walls that separate us into different ethnicities or nation states or whatever the case is, that they're, that they're fabricated, that they're not real, right? That, they're, that where you're born is just a matter of luck, that there isn't any difference between you in Bradford and the woman in Tehran you know, begging for her rights. There's nothing that separates the two of you. It's just one of you happened to be born here and one of you happened to be born there. And I read that and I thought to myself, that's more than a century ago. Mm. And that idea is so revelatory that if we could learn it today, if we could, you know, learn that lesson today, then the world would be a completely different place. Yes, that's super interesting, very compelling. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, one of the things that we're just sort of, I suppose, responding to that, one of the things that um, I think you really see as a thread through the book is how, if you like, certain, certain sort of uh, uh, people or ideas that perhaps sometimes we, tre- we treat as a block um, is actually, are, are, not, are not specific blocks and are full of fissures and contradictions. So, it's, you know, you were speaking then about how obviously Baskerville goes to Iran as a evangelical, is that correct? Evangelical yes, he was, he, was, he was really the first generation 
of what we would now refer to as evangelical. So right. he was the son of uh, the second great awakening, right? Uh, which is that moment at the end of the 18th century in which uh, what is now referred to as evangelical Christianity was first created. Yeah, and, and uh, like you're saying, there's these, there's these fishes kind of, what he's doing, it's not like, it's not like the establishment of the missionaries particularly like it and so on. And at the same time, when you discuss the kind of the, the, the politics of Shia Islam mm. in Iran at that time, it's super diverse. You know, there's ayatollahs like Behbahani who are obviously pro-revolution and pro-democracy. And then there's people like Fazlullah Nuri who are, come off like violent psychopaths. <laughs> yes. um, and I just, yeah, that, there's something really interesting for me about often I think these questions when we think about Iran or actually when we think about the West and we say, you know, what is Islam? What is Christianity? But actually, there are many Islams, right? There are many Christianities. Right. I just wondered if you could, you could speak on that for us. Yeah, uh, this, is, uh, this is kind of the foundation of, you know, my scholarly work for the last two decades is basically trying to get people to stop saying the word Christianity as though it's a single thing or Islam as though it's mm. a single thing. Um, trying to make people understand that Islam is whatever a Muslim says it is, mm. that Christianity is whatever a Christian says it is, um, and that it's always been that way. And you're right, you know, it's really fascinating. Um, so, just I, we've been dancing around the end of this story for a minute, but let me just get to the end of the story, which is that on April 19th, after months of a siege, a blockade of the city, that had led to the starvation of tens of thousands of the city's residents. Um, the revolutionaries basically say, look, we're, we're either gonna die waiting for the siege to be lifted or we'll die lifting the siege ourselves. So uh, on April 19th, they put together this plan where everyone will go and break through a certain part of the line and Baskerville and his students um, are responsible for the sort of the northwestern line um, and the, the it doesn't take very long basketball gets shot in the heart and he dies but his death becomes such a global story then as well as now for better or worse if an American dies it's a big deal yeah you know at this point, thousands of Russians and Turks and Persians and Armenians and Georgians and, you know, they were all dying. Nobody seemed to care. And then an American died. And then now suddenly it's a big deal. And so that sort of enforced the Russians to pressure the Shah to, to uh, uh, declare a ceasefire um, in order to bring uh, humanitarian aid into the city and the revolutionaries used the ceasefire as an opportunity to break through the siege and march to Tehran and bring the Shah down from his throne. So they won. They reestablished the constitution. So there is a happy ending. Yeah, and then ever since then, Iran has been a democracy. <laughs> um, <laughs> they win. They, what, that's what's extraordinary is that in 1909, they win. The Shah is removed from power. His 12-year-old son is put on the throne because he can be controlled. The constitution is, is written. Fazlullah Nuri is taken to the middle of a square and hung by his neck, right? Which is extraordinary. Mm. I mean, they, they, they execute an ayatollah 
and there are other ayatollahs there watching it happen. Um, and there's a parliament now, and Iran is a constitutional state for a little while. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, you know, then there's the war, and then there's the coup of Reza, Reza Khan, and then every, you know, it, it is what it is. The point being that I, I feel like, you know, we, we think about this, this moment in time, and not just the lessons that it, it teaches us for today, but as sort of those, those historical moments where oh, if, if only this thing would have happened, or if only you know, that thing would have happened. And what I love about this story is that it really does bring to light the power that a single individual can have you know, that the, the decisions that one person can make that can actually make a huge difference. You know, he's this 24-year-old kid. I mean, you know, he wasn't even a fighter. Like, he was, he, was a, he, was, he was studying to be a Christian minister. He had never shot a gun before, you know, before they put him in charge of, of a militia. Um, but he was willing to die for this one simple belief that he had, which is that freedom is God's gift to humanity. Either we are all free or no one is free. That the suffering of any one person anywhere in the world is the responsibility of all people everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that he was willing to put that belief into practice, even if it meant, you know, the sacrificing of his life. You know, I've always been moved by those kinds of people, those kinds of stories. Um, people who, when confronted by injustice, activate their faith in order to do something about it. That's the story of Jesus, by the mm. way. That's the story of the Prophet Muhammad. You know, they, there isn't that much that separates mm. you know, the story of Baskerville from those great prophetic stories. People who see injustice and then activate their faith to do something about it. Mm. Um, and for me, that's why, you know, Baskerville is a name that needs to be remembered. Mm. Yeah, for sure, man. I mean, one, one question, one more question about the Constitutional Revolution, if that's all right. It seems to me, um, uh, I know probably folks over here uh, are interested in what's going on in Iran now mm. as well. And it seems to me like, it's, it strikes me that those... Uh, revolutionaries of the constitutional period, uh, your Baskervilles, your Satsar Khans, mm -hmm. your, all these epic characters and that sense of vision that they have, they're not something that I see, they're not, they're not a series, of, like as an iconography, as a, how do you say, like, um, uh, yeah, as an iconography, mm -hmm. as a kind of um, uh, a collection of saints or something like that, yeah. they don't seem to be deployed that much in the current uprising in Iran. I don't, th and I don't think that iconography was deployed that much in 2009 either. No. I also don't think it was deployed that much in 79, right? Um, I think, a little bit more in 79, right? yeah. A little bit more in 79. In 79, there were these sort of really fascinating um, articles that were being written in Persian and in English. There was a great piece in The Nation magazine, which is a very progressive a very old uh, magazine in the U.S. that was written by uh, Reza Bahareini, who was a, um, 
uh, a fiction writer, a, a, an essayist, a thought leader. And the title of the piece was, this was, this was I think, uh, January of 1979, or maybe December of 78. And the title of the piece was, Where Are the Baskervilles of Today? Wow. And the conclusion of that piece, which is really fascinating, is that he says something along the lines of, the truth is, is that if there were a Howard Baskerville today, he'd very likely be shooting at his fellow countrymen. Mm. And I think that's the, that's the thing, mm. is that these great icons, you know, the Sattar Khans, the Hassan Sharif Zadehs, mm. the Ayatollah Behbahanis, um, which in, in you know, 1905, 1906, seven were, you know the 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 George Washington and the and the you know John Adams of of you know this revolution. This sort of these these pivotal figures of the revolution. Their memories have become so embroiled in the shifting of politics that it's very hard to bring them up, mm -hmm. you know, in modern contexts anymore. Um, Satar Khan is a, is a fascinating one because you would think that you know, these uh, young people who are fighting against an oppressive religious theocratic regime uh, would want as their icon this barely literate horse trader, you know, who became the leader of this revolution. Except that that barely literate horse trader was a profoundly pious and devout man. And you're fighting a theocratic regime, and so there, the mm. idea that you would link yourself up with somebody who is also a religious person—it's sticky. On the flip side, when you think about, you know, '79, um, there was this—you know—there was a lot of clerics who fought against the Shah, and this idea of like, oh, here we have this this despot, just like we had in 1905, you know? Let's use some of that iconography. Let's use some of that memory. This one time that we fought against the Shah, and now we're fighting against the Shah again. Except that, as you rightly noted, that in that constitutional revolution, there was this real divide in the religious groups. And yes, the, the progressive Iranian Ayatollahs won that one, and the regressive ones not only lost, but were executed as a mm -hmm. result. But if you're a politically minded Ayatollah fighting the Shah, you can't bring that up. Yeah, because yeah. it's like, well, which one am I, which vision am I going for? It's a shame. It really is a shame because mm -hmm. I think that so much of what everyone recognizes about Iran today, which is it is unquestionably the most robust political culture, certainly in the Middle East, maybe the world, um, that so much of that can be traced to 1905 mm. and that first constitution. You know, so many of the same patterns, the same uh, slogans, you know, that have been going on for so long, but it's becoming harder and harder to look back at that time and free it from the weight of contemporary politics. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's that's a really, really, yeah, really interesting insights. If I may, it always strikes me that like those, there's a, like you're saying, there's a sense of contradiction of those histories that this, this regime that's in power now, like I think like a lot of regimes that comes to power on the back of a revolution, 
wants to present itself as like the revolution that won, right? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like the, 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 the delivered on the promises right. and, and this. And it was, sort of strikes me as a really interesting example of that, the sort of contradictory bullshit nature of that history is in, uh, I remember being in Tehran once um, when they just built the metro system and there was two stops on the metro system. One was named after, what's he called? Uh, Fatemi, right? The oil minister <laughs> under Mossadegh, who was this great patriotic hero who tried to nationalize oil and he was murdered really brutally uh, as a result of trying to nationalize the oil after the coup. Another stop is named after Nawab Safavi, who was one of the founders of a terrorist group called the Fidayina Islam, who were kind of nationalist, very, very, very sort of, how do you say, uh, um, kind of conservatively religious. Mm -hmm. And But both are being, uh, for a bit, the Fidayin were pro-nationalization of oil, and then they betrayed it. And well, it's a complicated story. Point is, at some point, Nawab Safavi tries to assassinate Fatemi um, before Fatemi is killed, and they've both got subway stops named right. after each other, about three stops away. Right. I mean, like, Pick a lane, fellas. I know. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, um, it's, it's, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, one of the things I, mean, I was uh, saying when we met over email that I was a big fan of your book, uh, Zealot. The in fact, I one of the first times I came across you in your work was uh, I hope you don't mind me saying that um, a, f uh, a fantastic section of an interview with you with Fox News, I oh, believe. Yeah. <laughs> that went viral, and I thought this guy's got <laughs> yeah. lovely hair, and he gives, he gives it to Fox News, I like this guy, um, when you're speaking about that book, right? Um, and uh, So it's, uh, if folks don't know, you know, Zealot is a, it's kind of a, one of these, uh, I suppose it's about who the historical Jesus may have right. been, right? Right, right, it was a, it's a biography of the historical Jesus, yeah. Um, and you're a scholar of religion. I'm a scholar of religions, yeah. By profession. Yeah. That's right. Or, or training, let's say. That's right. Um, and so, yeah, I, one of the, this, you know, one of the things that you managed to get across in that book really well, I think, is, is um, and really sort of shifted how I thought about that stuff, is, uh, you know, quite, quite how much it's, it's, it's useful to think about Jesus as a, a political player. I don't want to reduce him to those things. But again, it's interesting hearing you talking about that connection between faith and ideas mm -hmm. and why people do what they do. And I just wondered if... It, if, if you would speak for us a little bit about the parallels between those two. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. Um, my interest as a scholar um, is, I'm very interested in origins. So I write a lot about origins. So in, in Zealot, I write about the origins of Christianity. In Noga Bagat, I write about the origins of Islam. Uh, I have another book called God, A Human History, which is about the origins of God. Like, where did this very... Where did this concept, you know, how did it arise in human evolution? And I think sometimes, especially when we talk about these sort of great prophetic figures, we think that they were born in a vacuum, right? That they were completely unaffected by the world in which they lived. In fact, that's how we talk about them a lot, mm -hmm. right? That there was this kind of world of darkness and then this pillar of light suddenly appeared um, and this light was absolutely unaffected by anything else that was going on. And what that person said was utterly new. It had never been thought or said before. And none of that is true. All of that is nonsense. Whatever you think of, you know, these great prophetic figures, however you think of them, they were also humans. They were people who lived in a specific time and place. They spoke to specific people. <laughs> um, and the only way to really understand who they were, what they were saying, and what it meant was to understand the worlds in which they lived. 
And so that's what I always try to do. So when I, when I wrote my uh, biography of the Prophet Muhammad, I think a lot of people got upset because what I was saying was actually isn't all that new in mm. what the Prophet was saying. Just all that stuff was out there already. Mm. You know, there's absolutely nothing novel mm. in, in pre-Islamic Arabia in the phrase, there is no God but God. Mm. That's not a novel thought. Most of the pre-Islamic Arabs believed that there was only one God. Right. They just didn't care. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what was novel was the social and political consequences of that phrase, right? Mm. Same with, you know, Jesus. There were dozens of people walking around first century Palestine healing the sick, performing miracles, calling themselves the Messiah. We know their names. And by the way, if we know the names of a dozen of them, that means there were 1,200 of them. And Jesus was frankly, in his lifetime, one of the less popular ones. Mm. Um, what the question then becomes, what is it about that? What is it about Jesus? What is it about Muhammad? What is it about Moses that actually made them last? Mm-hmm. And a believer will say, well, because they were true mm-hmm. and the others were not. Fine. That's perfectly fine. But let's strip that for a moment and just look at it, you know, from the lens of a human being. What made those people last, what made their words last, what made it successful was not their theology. Mm-hmm. Because their theology was just stuff that everybody else was already saying. What made it last was the, for lack of a better word, politics of what they were doing, right? The Prophet Muhammad was not overturning the religious ideas of his time. He was overturning the socioeconomic ideas of his time. That's what made him an enemy. That's what created this new community that then became this empire and so on. Mm. Same thing with Jesus. What Jesus was saying, as far as you know, the religion part, wasn't all that new. What was new was this new vision that he had about the, the, what he called the kingdom of God, which is that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That woe to you who, who are, uh, blessed are you who are hungry because you will be filled. Woe to you who are filled for you shall go hungry. There's this idea that Jesus was, you know, like holding hands and singing Kumbaya, you know, and, and that what he wanted was everyone to be the same. That's not, what he's, <laughs> that's not what that means. The first shall be last and the last shall be first doesn't mean everyone is equal. It means the reversal of the social order. That's why you're killed. You're not killed because you're talking about heaven. Nobody cares. Mm-hmm. You're killed when you start talking about, you know how things are right now? It should be the opposite. Mm. That's when you're killed. And I think, again, that, that's the lesson that we have to remember about these great figures because it's a lesson that resonates again and again and again and again. Howard Baskerville was killed because he was willing in handing over his American passport to give up that privilege that kept him alive, a privilege that he could have used at any moment 
to just simply say, you know what, this is not my business, I'm just gonna go home. Mm. But he didn't, because he thought the world as it is shouldn't be, it should be different, and I'm willing to die for that. And so I think that when we bring some of these prophetic characters back down to earth, we don't deny you know, their, their spiritual significance or their divine influence or any of that, but just think about them as human beings they become so much more, in my view, worthy of being followed, right? If you think of Jesus as a celestial being, God incarnate, a perfect human who never sinned, how uninteresting is that? Mm. Like, how do I, what does that mean? To, it means nothing to me in my world. Think of him as a, what he really was, a dirt poor, illiterate peasant from the backwoods of Galilee who launched a rebellion against the greatest empire the world had ever known, now he matters. Mm. Now I can actually follow him. Now I can learn from him. Now I can model myself mm. uh, you know, uh, on him. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, a full disclosure, uh, uh, before I got into working in uh, theater and film and these things, I did an MA in uh, comparative religion and philosophy, so I could, do you know what I mean, sit here with you all afternoon. <laughs> um, uh, one, one thing I wanted to say, though, just before I open for questions from the floor, the bit of me that's like a playwright and a maker of theatre and this kind of stuff, one of the things that strikes me with the two of your books that I've read is that you have a little bit of a playwright's or filmmaker's uh, sort of sense of drama, and you, I think you're a very visual writer sometimes, like when you, when you pull stuff together. I can't uh, exactly remember it, but the, I, I remember the... I, Definitely remember the first passage at the beginning of Zealot when uh, you know you've got the uh, the the it's an assassination scene, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, really, really assassination uh, of the high priest, yeah. Yeah, which just I mean uh, you know take this. Uh, some people who are scholars as opposed to I suppose writers of drama might take this in, in the wrong way. <laughs> yes. I would say it's a, it's a really compelling you know uh, artistically really strong open you know uh, and, and again in the basketball camp, in, in the basketball book right you have this brilliant section where you're talking about you first introduce Reza Khan who's going to go on to become you know make this coup and become a kind mm -hmm. of dictatorial king later and you sort of set, set him up as this kind of like bandido figure <laughs> what's he called Reza 60 bullets and, yeah. and then, yeah. and, then and then we get Reza. Yeah. and then we get this moment that's like in I don't know 15 years later everything will be his and I think everything. that's yeah. that's a playwright writing that's a script writer. <laughs> so I just wanted to ask you about that style is that is that something you yes I, look I'm a I am a writer first and a scholar second um, I have an MFA in fiction um, I have always thought to myself that I find these things very interesting and if I could figure out a way to write about them in an accessible and entertaining way, other people will find them interesting too. I loathe academia, uh, which is why I've kind of left it behind. Um, we, you know, we spend so much time, we academics, uh, talking privately to ourselves in our own little private language that nobody else understands. Academia is the only industry in which you get punished for success. Right. which is so weird, right? Like, you don't, academics don't want you to actually speak beyond the walls of academia. They don't want you to go out there and talk to others. They don't, you know, as soon as you do that, then they say, well, you're not a real scholar. You're not real, you're not serious. Um, 
and I've never wanted to be that that mm. person. And so I've always wanted to combine, you know, my my training as a writer, my interest as a writer, uh, with my fascination about religion, in hopes that I could draw everybody else into the conversation. Mm. You know, people who wouldn't normally read a biography of the historical Jesus mm. because they're all terrible. Yeah. Um, but would read this one because it's written in the form of a story. Mm. It's as academically rigorous as anyone else's. I mean, I, I challenge, you know, any other scholar of, of uh, the historical Jesus, uh, but it's enjoyable. Mm. And I don't know why that's such a bad thing. Right? Yeah. It's a, it should be enjoyable. It should be something that you want to read. Um, you know, I mean, I, I imagine, you know, th that's why you read it, because it was enjoyable to read yeah as opposed to you know some of the other yeah and there's a lot of there's a lot yeah. of very good work on the yeah. historical jesus it's just a slog as i said a full disclosure i am a huge nerd so <laughs> yes. that's, that's like but you don't need to be a huge nerd to enjoy these books they're also just incredibly compelling um i just wanted to open up some questions from the floor now yes, if that's absolutely. all right yeah. i think we've got about 10 minutes if that's if that's right um is there anyone who wants to ask something or there's a, a friend over here just, yeah. There's a microphone coming, if that's all right. Can I just say a reason for thank you for today's... Can we just give you that mic? Is that all right? Thank you. Now you can hear, can you hear you. me all right. Yes, thank you. In, the, in your books as well as today, there's always that element of hope in what you say. You know, you build bridges, uh, you mend fences. Please keep on that good work. It's good what you're doing. Just very quickly, very few people will realise that here in Bradford, about 15 years before Baskerville, there was a strong link with Iran in that the uh, Shah at that time, Nasir al-Din, who you'll know about, he went on a European tour and he called into Bradford, of all places, and he visited the mills, Salts Mill, Manningham Mill. He was entertained at the city, the town hall in those days. And, you know, he was a celebrity, so there is that link. But my quick question... Uh, I've been several times to Iran myself, mainly studying the, the Kurds, the republic that used to be short-lived uh, uh, in, in Iran. I have a great concern with what's going on in the Persian Gulf. Now, as you'll know, with the Abraham Accords and so on, doors seem to be opening, Arab, Jew, and so on. But also, recently, Shia and sunny. The doors are opening, as you know, between Saudi Arabia and Iran. How do you see that unfolding? Yeah. So there is, uh, over the last six months or so, a real moment of detente between Saudi Arabia and Iran. These uh, real enemies, right? The real divide in the Middle East is between Saudis and Iran. And so much of the conflicts, whether we're talking about Lebanon or Syria, or whether we're talking about Yemen, Iraq right? or Yemen, um, is really just a proxy conflict between these two uh, forces. And so globally speaking, the idea that these two countries could come to some kind of accommodation, some kind of detente, is a good thing. And it's a thing that we should all recognize and we should all hope for because it might possibly uh, lower the temperature of some of these more regional conflicts that have 
you know, embroiled that region for so many decades. At the same time, uh, these two countries are the worst of the worst. Um, and, you know, <laughs> the idea that they could sort of come together under a single umbrella and begin to work under united interests isn't a great no, thing, not at all. right? Um, I will say one thing that is fascinating to me is that for decades, Saudi Arabia has set itself up around the world as the sort of leaders of Sunni Islam. And Iran has done the same for decades as the leaders of Shia Islam. And I would say that certainly over the last decade or so, those self-ascribed images have crumbled around the world. People, mm -hmm. Shia around the world, don't look at Iran mm. as, the, as the sort of the, 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 you know, the, the source of their faith any more than Sunnis around the world look at Saudi Arabia, on the contrary. Um, so I think both of these countries are losing a lot of their global influence, religiously speaking. And so that has as much to do with their interest in coming together and creating at least some measure of detente as much as the sort of rank politics of, of the region itself. So, you know, I have to be honest with you, I'm a little bit ambivalent mm -hmm. um, towards it. Uh, can it, as I say, lower the temperature in Yemen, in Bahrain, in Syria, in Lebanon? Possibly, mm -hmm. and that's a good thing. Um, but if what it portends is this kind of union of two oppressive, draconian theocracies, uh, one with all the money and one with all the weapons and technology, that's not good. Mm. Uh, I don't see that as, as any way uh, a, a good thing for mm. uh, the future of that region. It's a really interesting answer. I mean, if, if I may, I would say, I, I think sometimes when we think about uh, Iran and the, the movement there or, you know, more broadly than that, the Arab Spring, or especially when we think about Ukraine and Hong Kong and, and, and Syria, it seems to me that, like, you know, I have left of center politics. I'm used to generally calling for peace and that being a good thing. But when I think about Syria, when I think about Iran, when I think about Hong Kong and Ukraine, it's the peace of the graveyard right. that's being called for often, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, and, yeah. Uh, are there any more questions? There's a friend over there in a red T-shirt. <laughs> Hi, and uh, yes, yeah, so, so I was 20 minutes late, so you may have uh, covered some of this, in, um, but I was just interested as in this guy about Baskerville as, a, as an evangelical Christian going to preach the gospel. Uh, you, you, so you may have already said a bit about how uh, the Muslims in Iran responded to that. So I, I, I'm, I'm getting the idea that, yeah, he was about freedom, and so they really, uh, sounds like they became one of them sort of thing on that front, but yeah, just that no, religious. We actually didn't talk about it, that's a great question. Um, Yes, so there had been uh, missionaries in Iran for about 50 years before Baskerville showed up. Protestant missionaries. Catholics had been there for a very, very long time. But Protestant missionaries had only been there about 50 years before um, Baskerville showed up. And what's really fascinating about the Protestants, and especially the, the sort of the evangelicals that Baskerville represented, is that the first wave of those missionaries went there not to convert Muslims to Christianity because they knew that that was going to be extraordinarily difficult. It wasn't illegal 
at the time, but it was heavily frowned upon. Um, and so the first missionaries who went to Iran, like the first missionaries who went to Syria, you know, and the rest and the parts of the Levant, um, were there to convert Middle Eastern Christians to American evangelical Christianity. They were there to essentially tell these ancient Christian communities, many of which trace their lineage back to the apostles themselves, that you were, you're doing it wrong. That's not the right way to do it. Uh, the right way to do it is this brand new evangelical version of Christianity. And what was really, what's really fascinating about that effort is what a profound failure it was. Um, by Baskerville's time, they had now expanded and they were preaching to Muslims. And they were doing it in very clever ways, by building schools, by building hospitals, by building organizations that were there to serve the population. But part of that service was you had to hear the gospel. But from everything that I've read about that time period, these missionaries were not very successful. And they were not very successful for a a super important reason that I think sometimes gets forgotten in the West, but for people of the region is so obvious, which is that religion in the Middle East is not about personal choice. It's not about individual salvation, right? Religion is communal identity in the Middle East. In fact, it's... Uh, almost in many ways kind of, in, 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 it, it can't be sort of separated from uh, ethnicity or tribal affiliation, right? The idea, the sort of the American conception of religion as this kind of marketplace where you can just kind of choose your religion. You don't like this religion? Choose this other one. That one doesn't work for you? Choose another one. That idea was so foreign. Uh, to not just the Middle East, but truly large parts of the world, um, that it never really caught on. And that's the first, the first thing. The second thing is that so much about what religion is in that part of the world is about what you do, right? Um, th there's a complex uh, academic terminology for this, which is orthodoxy versus orthopraxy, correct belief versus correct practice. And evangelical Christianity is all about correct belief, right? There's a doctrine, you believe it, that's all you need. Mm. Then you're saved, you go to heaven, that's it. That's not how religion, most religion works. Most religion, you are a Muslim not because of necessarily the things that you believe, though of course belief is important, but because of the things that you do. You're a Jew, not so much because of the things that you believe, but because of the things that you do. Um, and this kind of practiceless version of religion that the Americans were preaching, all you gotta do is believe in Jesus' name. You don't have to do anything. Just believe in Jesus' name and you're set. It, it made no sense to them at all. And one thing that I'm, I was always really fascinated by about Baskerville's gradual turn is his acknowledgement that he, he writes about at the end of his life in this letter that he writes to the, um, 
American consul general and to the head of the school basically explaining himself. And he makes it very clear in that letter that, look, I've been, I've been preaching this thing for coming up on two years, and it does, nobody cares. You know, I've been talking about Jesus for two years. Nobody cares. I'm going to go do what Jesus would do now instead. I'm going to stop talking about what he, what he would do and just go do it. And there's this beautiful letter written by the wife of the headmaster um, after his death. Um, that she writes to the head of the Presbyterian church. Because, as you can imagine, the Presbyterian church was livid with Baskerville. They actually pretended that they had, he wasn't even one of theirs. They write this sort of very simple notice to the State Department where they say, he's not one of ours, not our problem, we don't know what you're talking about. Um, where she tries to explain you know, his actions. And she says this beautiful line where she says, his death has done more to spread the gospel among the youth in Tabriz than anything else that we have done in our 50 years here. And I just think, again, it's a sort of beautiful idea of what religion is, right? Religion is about putting your values into action. What's the point of having beliefs if you don't put them into action? then you're a monk. That's what, that's what that means. And I, the, this kid's political awakening occurred in parallel to that religious awakening. I have to stop talking about this stuff and just go and do it. And it was that simple decision that led to his death, obviously, but which suddenly, according to the people he left behind, had created this opening amongst the population that had never been there before. And indeed, as I say, to this day, his tomb, this tomb of a 24-year-old Christian missionary, uh, is still there. He is still considered a hero and a martyr uh, in a country that does not think very highly of evangelical Christians. But this one guy, this one kid, is considered a heroic figure still to this day, even though, as I say, most people have forgotten his name on purpose. Mm. What a brilliant place to leave it. I think that brings us to time, actually. But what, what a brilliant uh, final question and a great way of wrapping up. Thank you. Um, it's been a real, real pleasure having you, you here and sort of uh, introducing you to Bradford. And thanks, everyone in the audience, for coming. I know that you've got uh, your s available to sign books Absolutely. when we finish here. Yeah. So um, I'll let everyone get on and do that. But let's have a, a massive round of applause, Thank please. You. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the festival, please subscribe, share this episode with others and leave a rating. Don't forget to mark your calendars as the Bradford Literature Festival returns for its 10th year from 28th of June to the 7th of July 2024.